Welcome to Safer Roads by Protective Insurance. Expertise to help you protect your fleet. Hello, and welcome back to Safer Roads, presented by Protective Insurance. On this show, we sit down with experts from Protective to dive into the information they've gathered working as dedicated members of the transportation community for over the last 100 years. I'm Rudy Sallow. I'm a lawyer in a large U.S. law firm where I advise on financing infrastructure and transportation systems throughout the United States. I'm also a Forbes.com transportation contributor, public speaker, law professor, and podcaster. And today, we continue our four-part series on medical financing. Joining me once again to discuss is Senior Vice President of Claims for Protective Insurance, Nathan Lundquist, and Executive Vice President of Claims for Protective Insurance, Jeremy Goldstein. If you missed the last episode, we highly suggest you go back and listen to it. We discuss how medical financing can lead to a nuclear verdict and how medical financing differs from litigation financing. On today's episode, we delve even deeper into medical financing as Nathan, Jeremy, and I explore Protective's unique history with the issue of medical financing. We talk about the case that started it all, what important lessons were learned from that case, how medical financing cases play out, discovery, and ultimately what we like to see from medical financing cases. Welcome back, Jeremy and Nathan. For those who didn't hear the last episode, can you tell us a little about yourselves and your roles at Protective? Sure, I'll start off. I'm Jeremy Goldstein. I'm Executive Vice President of Claims at Protective, which is now part of the Progressive family. I was a practicing lawyer in Chicago for a number of years before moving into an in-house position at Protective and eventually taking over their claims departments. And Protective is a transportation underwriter. Uh, we write for large fleet trucks, medium fleets, and that kind of thing. Thanks, Jeremy. And Nathan? Yeah, so I'm Senior Vice President of Claims for Protective, and I lead the wheel side of the claims organization. Been here about eight years. Prior to that, also in private practice in the Indianapolis area. That's fantastic. Can either of you or both briefly recap some of the things that we learned on the last episode? You know, I'll start off, and Nathan can certainly jump in. I, I think that we kind of did a basic primer on what medical finance is and and kind of where we were seeing it. And, and to some extent, we started into why we started as protective, started getting interested into it. But essentially, it's, it's when an interested third party injects itself into sort of the traditional structure of tort litigation. And by that, I mean, you know, basically you have a finance company coming in along with, you know, a, a plaintiff's attorney and treating physicians and in order to finance some of that, the medical bills that would come through, unfortunately, what that has done is sort of disrupted the normal course of events as, as we've seen in tort litigation for the last, whatever, 25, 30 years. And that's a perfect segue into our next question, which is what is Protective's experience with medical financing in cases? Going back, you know, probably, probably about four years now, we were seeing obviously like a lot of carriers inflated medical across the board, um, certain states more significant than others. Probably three, four years ago, we saw a particular case that seemed to be especially egregious with some red flags in it that piqued the interest of, of myself, Jeremy, and, and a few other folks around the claims organization. And so we took a deeper dive into that particular case, figured out the background on why the meds were so high, and worked to get some of the background information on the funding company that was involved. And fortunately, we were able to get those documents from the the judge allowed us to pursue that discovery. So 
sort of by happenstance with the first case, we were pretty successful in getting documents that aren't always easily obtained in litigation. And it sort of started the ball rolling from that point forward. And at that point in time, the executive team at Protective was really engaged in in this topic and fortunately gave me an outlet to pursue this and learn as much as I could about it and sort of implement strategies across the claims organization to try to combat it. So speaking about that specific case that seemed to start it all for medical financing and protective, are there any details that you feel comfortable providing that, you know, just so our listeners can get a better taste of the case? Well, and I can break in just real quick also as a background. So so Nathan is head of, you know, sort of our wheels organization with respect to claims. You see a, just a ton of injury claims come through, right? And you see, you know, certain levels of injury, you know, sort of a, a, a low, mid and, and high level of injury cases. And while it's not perfect, if you're in claims long enough, you kind of know what to expect and what's going to come next on a claim. You also kind of understand not to the, the dollar or the nickel or the penny, but you have a good understanding of what the costs are going to be for those injuries. Right. And so when you when you see one that's just totally off you kind of wonder what's happening. And when you try to settle a case like that, and it doesn't go the expected route of the other 99 that you've settled over the last three months or whatever it is, that's when you kind of start digging in and start looking under stones and that kind of thing. So sorry, Nathan, Uh, the details of the case, I I kind of remember them, but I think you're going to be better at that than I am. Particular claimant, younger, had private insurance, and treated with private insurance for a significant period of time post-accident and had a an SI fusion done on one side that was not did not utilize her private insurance for, which sort of raised the first red flag. Now, it turns out her private insurance deemed that experimental and wouldn't cover it. And so she had a valid route for proceeding under a letter of protection to, to get that treatment and ultimately was concerned that she would need the other side fused in the future. And so she was trying to ensure that she got enough money from the settlement to cover the additional procedure. And so the medical bills were particularly high with that first uh, SI fusion, and it was conflated by a higher retention agreement uh, with her lawyer, who had a 50% contingency fee. Just for anybody listening out there, the norm and contingencies usually between 33 with a max of 40, correct? Is that what you would say? Right. It would be unusual to see something above 40. And so that raised the amount necessary to pocket to sort of break even to pay for that subsequent surgery. And so we were approaching settlement with that in mind, not knowing the contingency piece until we got to mediation. When when would you normally find out about a contingency arrangement? Was this this was this one particularly late or I'm just just curious about that detail? So we don't typically find out explicitly what they are. It came up as a roadblock in mediation because the lawyer <laughs> once he took out 50%, it required a significant higher sum to to get the pocket money she anticipated needing for the subsequent surgery. Once we figured out the insurance piece, we were able to subpoena the funding company's records because the funding company had purchased the healthcare liens from the hospital and the medical providers. 
And so we were trying to figure out how much they paid for those liens to get a, for lack of a better word, a reasonable and customary amount of the cost of those procedures, right? So if you have a healthcare provider that has turned what should be a $30,000 surgery into a $100,000 surgery for purposes of billing, but then turned around and sold that lien to a finance company for $32,000, now you have $68,000 sitting out there in anticipated profit from a funding company that's now holding that lien. It's relevant for negotiations. It's relevant for reasonable and customary purposes. And so once we were able to get that information and work backwards on numbers to get to a point where it made sense to settle, and it also took some education of plaintiff that if she wasn't treating under a letter of protection, the anticipated cost of a future SI fusion surgery was significantly less than what was billed in this case. Right. So if she thought she needed $100,000 because that's what the letter of protection said was billed for that, and it was really 30, that's a big gap for purposes of negotiations. And to put her mind at ease that she was getting a result sufficient to cover anticipated future costs. The other thing that maybe in contrast, just to kind of reinforce the idea of why this is a big deal, you know, and, and put in its most elementary form, right? And what I'm going to say is not perfect here, but. For a long time, uh, and you may have heard of it, there, there was this, this notion of three times specials. I don't know if you ever heard that, but what's the value of a case? It's three times specials. Well, if you really broke that down, there was an amount of medical bills, if we call those the special damages, and you would multiply that basically by three, call it $100,000. You would multiply it by three and you'd have 300. And guess how it would be divided up? The medical provider would take a third the attorney would take a third because we know it was a third contingency fee and the plaintiff would get a third in their pocket. One of the issues and why it's much more complicated than this, obviously, but if then if you get a fourth party involved that is looking for a profit on something than on a lien, essentially, that they have bought, then it's going to be a lot more expensive to settle that claim, right? And for billing purposes, you can say whatever you want to, what the value of that that medical bill was. I mean, a, a doctor could say, well, it's a $100,000 procedure. The actual cost may be half. It may be a quarter of that or something else. But then you do get that confusion in the injured party uh, saying, well, it's going to cost me $100,000 to get a surgery later on if this ever happens. Well, that's not true. That's what the doctor put down on their bill for purposes of getting the case settled or going to trial or whatever else. It may be more like 15, it may be 20, it may be 25, whoever it is. But it seems to me, Nathan, that the finance companies kind of use that inflated number as sort of the biblical number that you have to go by. You find that correct, Nathan? That's how they figure out how they're going to get their piece of it? It was that inflated number? Yeah. And so we talked about this a little bit last time, right, with respect to charge master rates, right, which is sort of the, the highest amount that they will bill for a procedure. And so if a procedure costs 200, 200 bucks, they may have a charge master of a thousand for treating under a letter of protection. And so you'll see that amount and they have the higher rate blocked off in theory to cover their quote unquote risk for treating under a letter of protection. The challenge I think where that breaks down is when you're treating under a letter of protection, that agreement states that the claimant who is receiving that treatment remains responsible for the full amount of the medical. And so they will say, 
the cost just offset the risks. But the risk is theoretically anyway, nil, right? Because the plaintiff remains responsible for the full amount of the medical under the letter of protection. Now, in reality, we know that's not what happens. If the plaintiff doesn't recover, they're not going to pursue that plaintiff for much, if any, of the outstanding medical. There is, I guess, potentially a risk there, but it's not what is under contract or under the letter of protection. So how does medical financing in cases usually play out? Like, for example, when does it enter into the picture and why? What are some of its unique intricacies that make cases especially challenging? How does it play out? It can come in at all different times, right? So the first case that sort of piqued our interest, it came in late because of the experimental nature of the procedure and needing funding to to cover the cost. In that case, it came in late. A lot of times we see it in early. It can be as simple as plaintiff's lawyers with connections to funding companies and to doctors that treat on a lean basis. By that, I mean the plaintiff will sign the letter of protection in exchange for treatment. The letter of protection will typically say you're opting out of pursuing private insurance for this, and it will theoretically try to get the plaintiff's lawyer to sign off that they will protect that lien as well, right? So when they treat on a lien basis, it's no money out of pocket. It'll come out of whatever litigation proceeds there are. And if none, then theoretically, they're on the hook for the rest. I'm sure if you were to ask a plaintiff's attorney about medical financing, they would probably say, hey, medical financing is a vehicle by which a plaintiff can have access to medical care that they wouldn't have ordinarily have been able to do. And that may be true in some contexts. I think for the most part, that's not true because you've heard Nathan talk about if you have private health insurance, one of the requirements to getting into medical finance is that you do not use the health insurance that would ordinarily pay for this, right? So I think in some ways you can say that that medical finance really may not be for the benefit of the injured plaintiff as much as it is for the doctor or the provider's office. And they can use that financing to basically finance their, you know, take on more cases, do other things, kind of keep the lights on, sell off that stuff, where in a traditional lean environment, the doctor may have to wait and carry that receivable for three, four years until the case is settled. Instead, they're getting the same price for that early on in the case by by transferring that off to a medical financing company. How often is the case in these medical financing cases? You, you spoke of this very first case where it was an experimental procedure, right? That's what you said. That was the thing that kind of triggered off. How often is experimental procedures, how often does that lead to a medical financing kind of a situation? So there's, there's one that comes to mind, right? The first one. The first one, of course, yes. But, but besides that one. Yeah, no, otherwise, that's not really the, the basis for it. It's a mechanism to create a high lien to present billed amounts at trial um, in front of a jury. And so you'll see chiropractors treating on a lien basis, PT, pain management, neck and back docs, right? So spinal fusions. Psychotherapists? You see psychotherapists is all I'd imagine too? Yeah. I mean, any medical treatment you can think of will, can be done on a lien basis. And so it's not the inaccessibility is not a valid argument. A couple of years ago, I had a couple of meetings with plaintiff's lawyers to specifically explore their involvement with medical financing and their perceptions of it. And the general feedback, by the way, the the lawyers I talked with do not utilize medical financing or lean-based medical treatment. They didn't have a lot of kind words to say about it. 
in terms of the additional pressures that it puts on plaintiffs, strains it puts on negotiations, because now you're sitting out there with a lien that is significantly larger than reasonable and customary cost, which hinders resolution, certainly when the plaintiff believes, rightly or wrongly, that he or she is on the hook for the full amount of that inflated lien. Can you predict the scope of the role that medical financing will play in the particular case? Are there are there telltale signs? There are certain red flags. There are providers that we've seen historically be involved in finance relationships consistently. There are certain plaintiffs' lawyers we've seen connected with those lawyers consistently. So if you see those folks, it's a red flag. Medical bills can be telling in terms of the information contained on them that can give indications of financing. So it it all requires a a fairly fine-tooth comb going through the records. Very rarely do they come right out and and say it explicitly that this is a lien-based case or that it's being financed by, pick your finance company. And do you think if they did do that, that would just set off too many alarm bells, that would trigger all kinds of issues? Like, What's wrong with coming out and saying that right away? I'm just curious. Our, Our position is there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, several states have been actively working on disclosure requirements, right? So you'll see disclosure requirements for litigation funding. And so the rationale is if there's financing involved in a plaintiff's personal injury case, that should be disclosed much along the same lines. Like it serves the same rational basis, like a lot of the policy decisions or policy arguments for disclosure exist in personal injury. And I think if you look at So last year, Colorado enacted a statute about financing or lien-based medical treatment. And on its surface, not incredibly favorable to the defense because it basically says none of the terms are relevant for purposes of the case. But when you dig into it a little bit, there are also a boatload of disclosures that need to be provided to the individual claimants about the potential higher cost, other avenues to pursue this which it goes back to probably what we opened the show with, right? Like transparency is really essential around medical treatment. And unfortunately, America just doesn't have that. It's not uncommon for jurors to say, well, of course that treatment was $236,000, right? Because no one has a rational basis for how they got to that cost. And there's no sort of outward insight, if you will, into standard medical costs. It's just just not something that's broken down around here. And as a practical matter, Rudy, I mean, it is kind of why we initially got into the whole thing. The transparency thing becomes important because you need to know who you're negotiating. Who who are the decision makers on the other side? Right. I mean, Rudy, you've probably, and Nathan, we've all sat in mediations or in pretrial conferences where the mediator will, will push a certain side to, you know, to come up with a little bit more money or, or make the decision on a certain thing. The problem with the medical financing, if it's totally in the shadows and no one understands what's going on, it's not the plaintiff that, that can make the decision to, to settle the case because they don't have the money to cover the finance part of it. It's not necessarily the plaintiff's attorney that's sitting there. And then the defense is sitting there scratching their head as to why this thing is not going for the same amounts that most of these cases would typically go for. So if you knew there was a finance company involved, a mediator, a judge may say, I can't mediate this case unless that person's sitting here also. Got it. And that, you know, 
kind of is a good segue into my next topic, every litigator's favorite topic, which is discovery. Uh, Tell us about medical finance discovery. What's unique about the process compared to other instances of discovery? So true medical financing discovery requires us to pursue a funding company to get those records. So it's third-party discovery that, shockingly, (laughs) they're not willing participants in. And so it's a fair amount of litigation, very protective of their negotiated rates, for example, in terms of how much they're paying for these treatments on the back end, not what's billed, but what they're paying for those bills, right? And the, and the right to collect on those bills. And so you see it's sort of one, it's taking and stretching the litigation timeline a little bit, right? Because you're you're introducing a third party. And if we're focused on like the lean-based medical treatment, Well, now we're dealing with additional experts, right, about reasonable and customary costs of those treatments. And then, you know, one of the things we've seen a fair amount of are communications between providers, funding companies, and and plaintiffs' lawyers, and trying to get your mind around all of those and make sure you have them all, right? So now you can think about you're doing discovery on three fronts. You're doing it, uh, your standard discovery with the plaintiff, but you're including communications there between the plaintiff's legal team and potential funders and and medical providers. The same discovery with the medical providers, making sure you're getting all of their communications, whether they're considered part of their electronic medical record suite or not, with those providers and plaintiff's counsel and funding companies. Because if the doctor is participating in a funding arrangement, those funding companies are going to want periodic status updates to make sure they're protecting their assets. They're going to want to know, make sure that if they've resolved that case that they've been paid, or if there's a hiccup in the case and now it's not going the way they think it would, they want to know that sooner rather than later, right? Because there may be ongoing funding decisions to be made on that case. Now, what's fascinating is the treating providers won't necessarily have an update on that case, right? It's plaintiff's lawyer that has that update, right? They may see the patient once and not see them again. And so they're in turn asking plaintiff's counsel for those updates. So getting all of those communications can be problematic, but essential for evaluating who actually is interested in the outcome of this litigation. And to Jeremy's point, who should be participating or at least who should be aware of the negotiations to try to get it resolved? Yeah, it's like herding cats on steroids in a way, which, you know, just with all those different parties. Um, What do you like to see in regards to discovery materials? Like, are there any particular items, documents, conversations that tend to indicate that medical financing is actually impacting a case? Yeah. So on the medical bills, uh, a lot of times the financing companies will be listed or the responsible parties will be listed there. That can be impactful for evaluating exposure. The other because obviously we like to see communications if you are skeptical of the impact causing the alleged injuries, communications between plaintiff's counsel's uh, or plaintiff's legal team and the provider about authorization of treatment, right? So what what's interesting, what I mean by that is we've seen a number of cases where our position is plaintiff's counsel is the one authorizing treatment. Right. So the medical provider will reach out or the funding company will reach out and say, hey, we've agreed to fund this. And then the medical provider will reach out to the plaintiff's lawyer to get 
our view is permission or authority to treat or not treat. They may say, for example, the limits don't support this treatment, so we're not going to sign off on more. Or, you know, the lawyer and the medical provider deciding to cancel treatment, occasionally deciding which impact they're going to treat under because there are multiple accidents. So a lot of communications along those lines with the involved parties, like we just talked about with the discovery, right? Getting the communications between those sort of three big groups of folks are are significant. That's incredible. It's incredible. The role of a plaintiff's lawyer in that situation. Jeremy, Nathan, were there, was there anything else that you'd like to cover today that, that we haven't covered already? Ooh, that's like that deposition question, right? It is. I just, I just, it's that open-ended one where you could really step in it if you want, if you wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we should open the door. This was great to methodically go through uh, medical financing, getting down into the details. I, I, I learned an incredible amount. And that's going to do it for part two of our series on medical financing. Thanks again to Nathan and Jeremy for joining us and discussing why medical financing means so much to Protective and some of the specific details of medical financing that you can look out for in your own work. If you haven't subscribed, take some time to do so now so you don't miss part three of this series when we discuss why medical financing matters and how it varies from state to state. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and rate the show. I'm Rudy Sallow, and this has been Safer Roads by Protective Insurance.